0: If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me say again, uh, Happy New Year to everyone. I um, Assuming you're all just as energetic this morning as you've been every other Sunday morning. Um, but just in case you stayed up a little later last night than you have previous Saturdays, uh, just to make sure you're all ready, we're going to ask everyone to stand up and do 20 jumping jacks on your pew um, I didn't think anyone would stand up. Nobody listens to me after the smartphone joke a few weeks back. But uh, So what we're going to do is just move on. I'm just going to ask you a question to open this morning. Have you made your New Year's resolution yet? Every year, countless people follow the tradition of taking inventory of their life and picking something that they want to change or something they want to do or something they want to accomplish. And to be quite honest, um, they're unsuccessful at it. a lot of times it's because they aim so high, someone will determine that they want to lose 30 pounds. And when it doesn't happen in two weeks, they get discouraged. Or another person will resolve to quit smoking, which is a really great goal. Um, But they're quickly tested as the urgings just don't disappear overnight. Or every single year, St. Louis Cardinals fans resolve that this is finally the year in which they will be just as cool as Cubs fans. And not long passes before they realize the impossibility of this goal. And so they resign themselves to the pathetic normality of their existence. Um, I'm going to keep going with those. Just get used to them. Um, But many, many resolutions don't even make it to February before they're tossed to the wayside. Now, I don't know how they actually researched this, uh, but I read an article this week that claimed that 97% of people who make New Year's resolutions give up on those resolutions within 30 days. 97% don't even make it to February. And you know, we just hate to see you struggle around here. And so I'm going to do you all a favor and suggest some New Year's resolutions for you. Um, and these are probably ones that you haven't tried before, and hopefully they're going to be a little bit easier for you to achieve them. So what if in 2012 you finally resolved that you were going to read less? Think you can do that? Read actually less than the year before. Maybe get a nice start today by going home and making sure you don't read or learn anything new all afternoon. And be a great start to the year. What if you resolved to, to kind of clear up your schedule this year by get, getting rid of all those time wasters? For example, exercise. Just toss it out. For some of you, this would free up at least 30 minutes every year. Um. <laughs> how's this for a goal? This year you resolve to gain 30 pounds. Now take your time with it. Uh, this is just over a couple pounds a month, and I think by this time next year you could be there. Um. Now, in case someone's just incapable of picking up on humor, obviously these are terrible suggestions, Um, and I actually don't advise undertaking any of them. And though most New Year's resolutions are good goals to set, and the people who set them mean well, most fail for two reasons. Number one, almost every New Year's resolution is focused on self, and number two, for that reason, all power and effort and strength used to try to accomplish those goals comes from self. And though we would never admit it, we are quite incapable of changing ourselves within our own strength. But let's at least give it some due this morning. This idea of a New Year's resolution is not a bad tradition in and of itself. It's not a terrible idea to use the changing of the calendar to sort of take inventory. It's not a bad idea to review your choices and your habits and your character critically. The step that needs to be added is an appeal made to God. Where we actually seek God and ask Him what He would like to do in us. What commitments He desires for us to make. What changes He would like to bring about in our lives and in our souls. And what things He would like to do through us. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to use the turning of the calendar as a good enough excuse to, to ask God to critically review each and every one of us. And see if there aren't some things He would like for us to resolve to change or do this morning, not within our own power but within His. And to frame it, we're going to look at a popular passage of Scripture in Hebrews 12. So turn there and look with me at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, right at the beginning, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Join me, if you would, for a word of prayer. Father, this is Your Word. These are your people, this is your church, and this is your year. So we pray that at the start of it, you would move and speak and teach this morning. Shove me and each of us out of the way and take over this time. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Our author starts this chapter by saying, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And what he's doing is he's pointing back to the chapter that he just wrote, Hebrews chapter 11. Now Hebrews 11 has been given the nickname, the Hall of Fame of Faith. In this chapter, the story of many Old Testament heroes are detailed. And specifically, it's pointed out how they all acted in faith in both enduring trials and experiencing great victories. And the one common denominator between them was their faith in the power, plan, goodness, and grace of God. And because of that, the whole chapter details the amazing things that God was able to accomplish through them. And so right here at the first verse of chapter 12, by pointing back to them and then spurring us on, the author of Hebrews is basically asking this powerful question. Why couldn't God do it again? Why not us? Why can't our lives be in the same category? Why couldn't our story fit perfectly into the powerful narrative of Hebrews 11? And he points to the idea that even though you're all currently sitting still, you are in the middle of a race. He compares your life, the human experience on earth, to that of a race. And this is not the only time that scripture uses this analogy to describe our living in existence. Your life, your calling, your mission, your purpose, your existence, whether you realize it or not, you are in a race. Though you don't know the length of your race, it's been determined. Your job, your struggles, your successes, your failures, your victories, your joys and defeats, they all play a part of your race. And your race began the moment that you were born, and its completion will not be realized until eternity. Your race will end in eternity, not here on earth, the Bible says. And by the way, you should know, All races have winners and losers. There's never been a race where everyone has won. And the Bible, thank God, even though we don't always like to hear it, doesn't shy away from difficult truths, including this one. If your life is a race, you can lose it. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing and he says, Don't you know that in the race, all the runners run, But only one receives the prize. So run in such a way that you might receive the prize. The Bible is crystal clear on this point. How you run your race matters greatly. This was not lost on the author of Hebrews. So he tells us some things that if we implement them will aid us greatly in the running of our race. That if we put these things into practice, we can with God's help run our race so much more effectively. And the very first thing he suggests in Hebrews 12.1 is to lay aside every weight. Now remember the image that he's describing here of, of being a runner in a race. Would it make any sense at all for a runner if he's trying to win a race to strap extra weight on his, to his body? Not at all. It would slow him down. It would distract him from reaching his goal. And so the question that is presented to you in this passage is this. If life on earth is really just a path to eternity, what is weighing you down? What's weighing you down? What is burning you? What is hampering you? What is slowing you? What is exhausting you? What is keeping you here? What is keeping a fresh movement of God's spirit from coming into your life? Maybe you're harboring bitterness. Maybe somebody wronged you, as all people do. Maybe a spouse hurt you, as all spouses do. Maybe there's a wound from work, as as all jobs can give. Yet you're not advancing in your race. You're not drawing closer to God. All because your life is, is wrapped up with ill feelings and revenge and hurt. And what you don't realize, or maybe what you forgot is that whatever measure of forgiveness that you give others, that is the measure in which God will hold to you. Why don't you today, what what better day than the start of a new year, just just throw off the weight and the hindrance of bitterness and feel what it is like to run the race freely with all the other forgiven sinners of which you are one. Maybe you are burdened by the weight of stress and anger because you have just felt this need to be in control at all times. And when things don't go the way that you want them to, or someone doesn't meet your expectations, or things don't go according to the way you mapped it out, you become entrenched in stress and anger. And what happens is that your life isn't marked by outrageous joy. You're not a person that feels the ultimate freedom that we have in Christ. Actually, you're pretty much grumpy way more than you're happy. And often when people leave your company, they're in the worst mood than before they cross paths with you. It's because you're weighted down by this idea of control, by this incorrect idea that somehow you are God and you get to call the shots. And if life or others doesn't match up to that, you'll be miserable, and so will everyone around you. Or maybe you're just weighed down by logic and good old common sense. And you live and view and structure and organize your life within the safe and within the possible. And it's even how you view your faith. You thank God constantly for his blessings, but then you never put yourself in a position where he actually has to come through. Everything makes sense, it's all so tidy and organized, it's all put together, and that's exactly the problem. You don't ever step outside your comfort zone, so you never have to call on God to be miraculous for you. And when he tries to pull you there, you react logically. So, when God asks you to go all the way across the world to another continent to do some missions work, your response is, Well, can't afford the plane ticket. I don't have any vacation time left at work. I'd, I'd love to go. It'd be great. I just can't swing it right now. Or when He asks you to reach out to that neighbor or coworker that nobody likes because they're just really a terrible person, and you think, Yeah, it'd be great if they became a Christian, but it's not really going to happen, so I should focus my time on people who actually have a chance. Let me just ask this hypothetical question: What if God asked you today for every single thing you've stored up for retirement? What if He said, "You know, there's a building that needs to be built to support a ministry, and I want you to cover it. You're going to write the check." Or what if He said, "There's this whole villages of people in Africa whose lives would change dramatically if they just had a well to provide them with healthy water." your nest egg is going to provide that well. Or if he said, that young couple who's trying to go to the missions field full time and they're calling on me for support, I'm going to use you to send them. Now, I'm not God, clearly. So I'm not taking his place and suggesting that's what he's telling you. But I will tell you this, he very well could. He's God, he can do whatever he pleases, you know. And so the question you have to ask yourself is that if you were the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Jesus said, give it all up and follow me, what would your response really be? Is your life, is your story, is your experience marked by wonderful accounts of God coming through in the clutch for you time and time again because you are living in faith and following him and trusting in him to come through? Or have you been weighed down by five-year plans and savings accounts and logic and safety and comfort? Or maybe your extra weight or your burden is that you're just running too many races instead of running one. You have a desire to live for Christ. You you really do. You just don't have the time. You believe in the importance of church, honestly, it's just that you come when you can. And you'd like to think that Christ is the most important thing in your life, and you would freely tell others that if they asked it of you, it's just that so often he gets the leftovers. You've grown up reading and hearing, maybe even memorizing Philippians 3, where our only goal should be to know Christ more and become more like him. And that's a goal somewhere on the list. But so is career advancement. So is the latest trophy. So is every social group you want to be a part of. So is a whole bunch of other things that on their own are not bad or evil or wrong. But without you even realizing it, maybe they have now become the priority in your life. What is happening is that all of these worldly cares, all of the athletic pursuits, all of the riches or pleasures or whatever it is, is weighing you down to where your mind and all of your thoughts are centered here in the temporary on earth. And there can be inconsistencies between what you say you believe and actually how you live your life. And it's not that you're disingenuous, really. This is the easiest trap to fall in. I'm speaking from personal experience. It's just that you have too much world, too much of the temporary running your life. Your priorities are centered here. And it's quite possible you're being weighed down by something that that we haven't even mentioned this morning. The call of the Bible is the same lay it aside, drop the weight. Give God his due. Make him his word, his church, his kingdom your priority. He's earned it after all. And then the author of Hebrews tells us about a hindrance that is so great, it gets its own specific mention. For he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. The NIV translated, the sin that so easily entangles. And this is speaking to the notion that sin is always prevalent. It's always rare in its ugly head. It's always waiting to jump into our lives and hamper our race at any time. And because the struggle with sin is a lifelong one. The encouragement here in Hebrews 12 is to not let that be an excuse. Though you are not Perfect. None of us are. Though you will sin, we all do. You cannot let that reality be an excuse for coddling or just accepting sin into your life. We have to lay it aside. We have to to intercede to Christ to help us overcome. We have to hate our sin as God does. And sin is given a great description here. It's described as clingy. It attaches to you. It attaches to your life. It's ramifications. It just won't, they don't, they won't go away. And if you are a follower of Christ, the eternal punishment for your sin has been covered and cleared. But the consequences of it on this life just hang around and cling to you. Imagine trying to run a race with garments that cling and entangle you. It's constricting, it's debilitating, it's limiting. And the author of Hebrews paints such a vivid picture of sin because there's nothing that can slow your race like sin can. Once it entangles you, it can literally make you so self-focused that you're no longer much good for the kingdom of God. Listen, if you're if you're a child of God, our enemy cannot have your soul. He can't. It's been bought by Christ. But our enemy is not finished with you. He will want your influence. He will want your witness, he will want your confidence, he will want your impact, and his greatest tool in that battle is sin which so easily clings to us. And if you've gotten to a point in your life where you are, you're apathetic about your sin, if you feel like it's not that big a deal because after all nobody is perfect, then you've lost sight of how destructive, how debilitating, and how disabling being outside the will of God actually is. And my prayer for you is that you will turn to God today and ask him to help you see that sin the way he sees it because he sees the whole picture. And he knows that each time we step outside of his will, each time we are selfish and prideful, each time we go our own way, there are ramifications that run so deep we don't even know all of them. We miss out on blessings. Our fellowship with the God who created us is, is, and is, is our life source, is broken, and it often has a negative impact not just on us, but others around us. And it's the sin that clings so closely because we are sinful people living in a sinful world. Temptation will always be there, always right on the surface. Sin will always be prevalent. Which is why we were told at the end of verse 1 to run with Endurance. This is not a 60-yard sprint. The Christian life is not a one-time commitment in prayer, and then you are good. It is a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year race of endurance. Your identity is is that you are a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, and that identity is yours forever, and it's not to be shed or discarded. It's not a coat that you can take on and put off. It's a relationship with your Savior that will continue for eternity. So, how do we find success in this race? We've seen the challenges already. He lays it out for us in verse one. What upholds you? What keeps you? What strengthens you? What maintains you for such a marathon? Well, the answer, luckily, is not within you, it's actually not within your willpower. It's not within your focus or resources or capabilities. In fact, what you constantly need to do is to avail yourself to a power that is greater than yours. That the commitments required for you to run your race well are commitments to someone other than yourself. Because if you try to run your race well based on your own determination or your own willpower control, you're going to be like the 97% of people who give up every year on whatever new leaf they were turning. What you need is not a new magical remedy or some amazing breakthrough. It's a return to basics. My grandfather is enshrined in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. As a high school coach, he never coached at a school that had more than 300 kids, yet his career record was more than 500 wins with only 200 some losses. And I remember a conversation I had with him about the game once. I was in upper elementary, and he was asking me about our basketball practices. And I was complaining about the be- that the beginning of our practices were really boring, because it was toward the end of the season, and every single day we did the same drills, working on the same fundamentals of the game every day, dribbling, ball handling, bounce passes, chess passes, etc., And I told him I just couldn't wait to get older and to move on to high school and varsity to where we could study the more advanced parts of the game. He then told me that every single practice he ever ran, his team ran those exact same drills. They worked on those exact same fundamentals because if they didn't, everything else in the way they played the game would become sloppy. He also told me to research what John Wooden did. And for those of you who don't know, John Wooden was the coach at UCLA for a long time. He once won 88 consecutive games and also 10 consecutive national championships. He's largely considered the greatest coach ever. And I read about how every single practice that he ran, Wooden made his players go through those exact same drills on fundamentals that I was complaining about. And I realized how wrong I was. And you know What? Followers of Christ often talk about what they could do to grow in their faith, or how they're looking for new ideas to help them mature. But the thing is, we've been given tools, fundamentals of our faith that have been the same for the last 2,000 years. We actually don't have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is take advantage of what God has already given us. Because in the Bible, in God's word, we've been given the answer to every single important question you could ever ask. In in his word, God has revealed himself and his heart and his pursuit of us to us. It's his living and active word with a great power and capability to transform us. And so will you commit this year to investing in the word of God? To spending your choicest, most awake, most alert times of your day, letting God speak to you through the wonderful gift of his word. Will you do that? In his grace and his goodness, God also saw fit to create his church, his body. And not only did he create it, he commands his followers to be active in it and invest in it and minister through it. This is actually not a call to attend on Sunday mornings and then pat yourselves on the back. for some, that'd be a good place to start, just making the commitment to be here weekly. God's design for you is to invest in his body, to immerse yourself into his community, and to serve the body through your resources and abilities and spiritual gifts that he's given you. It's far more than making church an option. It's making this body your community. So will you commit this year to investing in the body of Christ, to clearing your schedule to be here every week, to using your gifts and abilities, to serving God's kingdom through his church, and to use your relationship and influences to grow his church by inviting others? Will you do that this year? God has also provided for us an unbroken, uninterrupted line of communication between us and him. He's made himself readily available to us to interact with him through prayer at any time of the day. And we have the ability to call on the resources of heaven for encouragement and forgiveness and strength and healing and comfort and assurance and power at any time. We also have within us his spirit that allows times of prayer to be more than just making requests, but also time for life-changing fellowship with our creator. So will you make the commitment this year to pray to God, not just for 30 seconds before you go to bed or when you really need him, but throughout your day, during your conversations and car rides and times alone and on the way to church or before you read the Bible and just really invest in the most important relationship in your life? Will you do that this year? Because, you see, we can talk about going to the next level in our faith all we want. We can say how we want to constantly experience him in our lives. We can have a desire to go deeper. And all of that is wonderful. But all of it directly flows from how much we take advantage of the tools and resources and gifts that God has already given us to help us run our race. And most importantly of all, most importantly of all, time in his word, investment in his church, and communicating, communicating with him all force us to do exactly what we are called to do in verse 2. Look at what we're told to do in verse 2. The author says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, a runner in a race is not served well if he's glancing around everywhere, looking wherever he pleases. The very best runners fix their eyes on where they want to go. And we are told in our race to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ, and this is for several reasons. First of all, it says that he is the founder of our faith. Other translations say that he is the author of our faith. I hope you don't think this morning that you saved yourself. I hope if you are a child of God you are grateful to God that in his grace he plucked you from a path of sure destruction and made you his child. And for that he should receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise but it also sets up an interesting distinction because Jesus is not just the founder of our faith he is the perfecter. Ephesians tells us that we are God's handiwork. Isaiah says that God is a potter, and we are the clay, and his hands are on us. It's why those fundamentals are so key, because we are powerless to change ourselves. And when we invest in God's word and his church and spend time communicating with him, we are making ourselves available to the only power in the universe that actually can change people. We are opening ourselves to the perfecter of our faith, allowing Jesus in his grace to continue the work that he has already begun in us. And lastly, we fix our eyes upon Jesus because we can see how he ran his race so well. Verse 2 tells us that it was joy set before him that he endured death on the cross. And since he completed his race, he, he is now seated at his rightful position at the right hand of the throne of God. And the question that jumps out to me from that verse is how could the cross be joyous? How could suffering and anguish and horrible physical pain be joyous? Well, it's because Jesus, even though he came here, was always thinking of there. Though he became one of us and and fully immersed himself into our temporary reality, he was constantly thinking of eternity. And he fully realized how short-term and temporary life on this earth is. And so everything he did, everything he taught, everything he endured, and everything he he was about, he had in mind an eternal aim. And the cross is just the ultimate example of that. It was the worst day of anyone's existence ever. And Christ could have stopped at any time. He had that power and capability. But he endured Because his mind was not centered on the temporary short-term pain. It was focused on what this one act would accomplish for so many for all eternity. C.S. Lewis, writing about his day with words that seem to ring even truer now, said this, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So let me ask you, Looking back, what was your focus on in 2011? Parents, what were the goals of your household last year? Was it raising and training up your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord? Was it an, an eternal mindset where Christ ruled your house informed your schedules and affected your decisions? Or were the majority of your pursuits centered on the here and now and he got what was left over? Young person, teenager, college student, what was your focus on in 2011? Was that guy or girl you liked? Was it about chasing pleasure and partying or even the almighty dollar? Was it more about fitting in than being a light? Or did you pursue Christ? Was your mindset on eternal things, asking God to prepare you and those around you for what will actually last? Church, what was our focus in 2011? What was your focus while you were here? Was it on making ourselves more available and better fitted to find the lost in this community and the point them to Jesus Christ? Was it on seeking, uh, how, seeking God as to how he could form within us a community that is so attractive and so loving that he brings others to experience it? Or was it sidetracked by personal preferences by getting what you wanted out of the services or studies or ministries? Was the focus of your personal experience, was, it, was the focus on your personal experience entirely not giving mind to where others may be in their walk with Christ? The better question, the more important question today is where will your focus be in 2012? Now I never ran track, and my tortoise-like speed probably means that's a good idea. But I was involved in one sporting event that turned into a race once. It was actually a baseball game. It's an elementary school, a little league. I think I was in fourth grade. And the scenario was this: It was the, last, it was the bottom of the last inning. There was two outs, tie game, runner on third. And it was my turn to bat. This is probably the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. I stepped in, and the first couple of pitches are a blur to me, but however it happened, eventually the count came one ball and two strikes. And I knew that on the very next pitch, now that I had two strikes, I could be the hero, or if I missed it, I could be the GOAT. So I stepped out of the box and did what I remember my dad always telling me to do in tough situations. Take three deep breaths then step back in and get ready. So I went through this whole routine and I stepped in and pitch came right down the middle. And I gripped the bat and swung as hard as I could and fouled it off. So now I had to go through the whole thing again. Step out, take three deep breaths, step in. Pitch came right down the middle again, fouled it off. I fouled off six consecutive pitches by this time my stomach was in a knot that would never be untwisted. Something told me to wait a little longer because I kept being ahead of the ball. And so finally on the 10th pitch of the at bat I hesitated just a bit before I swung and I pulled it right down the third baseline. And I did something I should never do. Every coach who ever played baseball would yell at me. I snuck a peek at the third baseman to see if he would grab the ball. And he did. And I knew at that moment it would become a race between me and the ball. And if the ball beat me to first base, I would be out, the game would go into extras, and who knows what would happen. But if I beat the ball, the runner from third would score, we'd win the game, and I'd be the hero. I ran as hard as I have ever run in my entire life. The question I have for you is this. When my foot hit that first base bag, who do you think I looked at? I didn't look at my coach. I didn't look to see where my parents were sitting in the stands. I didn't look at my teammates. I didn't look at the first baseman. I didn't look at the cute girl in the third row that I probably did earlier in the third game. My race was complete. And at that moment, there was only one person whose opinion mattered. It was the umpire who would make his judgment based on how I ran my race. And after what seemed like an eternity, he did this. You think I'd tell it if I got out? (laughs) It's the greatest sporting moment of my life. But you see, for every one of us, there will come a time in which our race is going to end. I'll tell you what, at at that moment, so much of what you are chasing now just won't matter. You won't care how big your house was. You won't care how many little league championships you won. You won't care what what car you drove. You won't care what someone else said or thought about you. You won't even remember all the things you're pursuing or chasing or giving such key amounts of time and thought and money to right now. All you will care about is Jesus Christ and his judgment on your race. Well, friends, the key to running your race well is to get to that point long before the race ever ends. The key is to care only about what Jesus thinks long before you stand before him. So can we commit to doing this together as a church this year? Can we just commit that that no other opinion, no other resource, no other pursuit or object of worship or hobby or person will influence us and change us and get our most choice investment this year other than Jesus Christ? Let us ask him to help us lay aside every weight, to lay aside our sin, and to run with endurance our race with our eyes fixed solely on Jesus Christ. And we do that. This will be the greatest year this place has ever seen. Let's pray. Father, I'm just overjoyed and thankful at how many people started off this year right by choosing to be here today. Lord, I pray that they will be blessed because of that. That you already have and will continue to during this time to work on them. To mold them. As you are the potter and we are the clay and how you want us to be. God, the very best place to be is in your will. And So as we run our race this year, let us fix our eyes on you and lay aside whatever it is you're asking us to lay aside right now. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Stand and let's sing together. Man.
0: Thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, Enjoy the holiday. There are no evening services tonight, but we invite you all back Wednesday night as everything will be a go. Um, We'll be back on our normal schedule this week. Um, And as you go, please go with our prayers for God's blessing on you in this year and go with Christ. You are dismissed.